Welcome, everybody. I'm so happy to see you all here. I think um, you've braved this uh, sudden downpour, and a few people are still caught in it. So thanks for your patience. We're, we started a bit late to capture a few more people, but we'll get going right now. Um, so first of all, welcome to the Royal Irish Academy. My name is Natalie Harrower. I'm the director of the Digital Repository of Ireland, the green one here. Um, uh, we're a trusted uh, digital repository for humanities and social sciences data. So we keep digital things safe for a long time so that you can look at them in the future. That's our core remit for social and cultural data in Ireland. Um, so we provide this preservation service and then we also provide access because why preserve something if you can't have the potential of, of access? Um, so that's, that's what we do. Um, we also bring collections together from different organizations to help uh, increase their discoverability so that you might go into DRI looking for one thing and come across something else uh, in your search and, and there's something serendipitous about that. So we are headquartered here at the Royal Irish Academy uh, but we also have uh, staff in Trinity College and Maynooth University. So that's a little bit about us. Um, what we're doing tonight is the start of a series uh, and this is very exciting to me. We're always happy to work with the National Archives and we've collaborated with them on different things over the last number of years. Um, but then when we decided to do something else, we, we came up with this idea for a joint lecture series. Um, and it's fabulous to work with them. It's always great to reach new communities. And you know we have a lot in common. We're interested in preservation. We're interested in archiving um, important data. But we do different kinds of, of data. Um, so this particular topic came up because um, there's a lot of talk in, in what we call digital preservation or archiving circles about what you have to do professionally to keep data. What are different organizations doing to keep things safe? Um, but meanwhile, all of us are running around as individuals uh, increasing our own digital collections at an enormous rate all the time, taking pictures on our phone, putting posts up on social media, um, and et cetera, and et cetera. Um, so what do, what do we do with these kinds of things? We thought this would be a really great start to the series. Um, and once we, when we have the wine reception at the end, we're really curious if anyone has ideas for other topics in the series, if there's things that you think would fit. But we're kicking it off with this one. Um, there's a hashtag for anybody who wants to tweet. It's uh, PD archiving. We didn't go with PDA because that could be taken the wrong way. Um, and uh, in terms of important announcements, there are two fire exits, this one here and the door that you came in at the front. And if you need the toilets, they are um, just outside of the library down the stairs in the basement. There'll be time for a Q&A at the end. Sarah's uh, very nicely agreed to take your questions. Um, but if there are more specific questions, you can also ask her them when you're in the wine reception. And please do stay for that. So I think that's the, uh, the end of my introduction uh, for this. And I'm going to now hand it over to Tom Quinlan from the National Archives. He's the acting director of the National Archives, who's going to introduce Sarah. Okay, thank you very much, Natalie. Um, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, as Natalie said, I am Tom Quinlan, Acting Director of the National Archives. And it's a genuine pleasure to be here this evening in the Royal Irish Academy for this event on personal digital archiving, which is jointly hosted with the Digital Repository of Ireland. As an organization charged by law with preserving the records of central government, the National Archives is acutely aware of the impact that modern technology is having on the way in which records are generated, stored, and maintained. We have an interest in ensuring that digital content is not only appropriately created and managed, but also a shared interest with the Digital Repository of Ireland in preserving that content to serve the needs of its creators, society's demands for accountability, as well as wider research and cultural ends. The presentation this evening by Sarah focuses attention on one area of digital preservation, uh, that, and it is one in which we individually have a role, uh, that of personal digital archiving. Because I think it's probably uh, you know, important for us to emphasize as archivists and as curators that while we do want your digital stuff, we'd like to get it in orderly, tidy, neat, and not in a mess. So it does help us too. Uh, our guest speaker is a research, uh, Sarah, is a research officer at the uh, Digital Preservation Coalition's uh, office in, in Glasgow. She researches new methods and technologies to support member organizations to ensure long-term access to their digital data, project manages the Technology Watch report series, and coordinates the web archiving and preservation working group. 
Sarah is the author of Preserving Social Media, a D Digital Preservation Coalition Technology Watch report that articulates the challenges of capturing and preserving user-generated content on web-based platforms. Her main interests include the preservation of web and social media content, community uptake of new methods and tools, and practical case studies for implementing digital preservation. Sarah has written extensively on digital preservation, including a topical note on personal digital archiving commissioned by the National Archives of Ireland, and also contributes to the DPC's blog. So we're pleased, very much pleased uh, this evening to welcome Sarah tonight, uh, and we're looking forward to hearing her recommendations on how to preserve our personal digital content into the future. Sarah. Uh, thank you for that introduction. Uh, I feel like we've raised expectations very high, uh, so I'll try to meet them somewhat. Starting my timer here to try and keep to time. I know we all want to get to the wine reception. Uh, so yes, it's lovely to meet you all, uh, and thank you, after your long day at work or studies or whatever, to choose to spend your Thursday evening uh, here with us discussing uh, your digital uh, content. Uh, so we all know about this. Uh, Natalie and Tom have done a great job of introducing. Um, I will just, um, to reiterate, the Digital Preservation Coalition, where I work, is a, is a non-profit. Um, and we do have lots of resources available on our website, most of them for professionals. But if you're interested in this topic, um, there's uh, lots of guidance and lots of detailed sort of uh, reports and things that are available openly for free on our website. Uh, so do have a look um, if you're interested. Although I did have a peek at the registration list, and I think there are quite a lot of off-duty archivists in the room. Um, could I see a show, show of hands of who, who's here from the industry? If you're an archivist or a librarian or a curator or a tech person who works for a library. Yeah, okay. So I am not here tonight to speak to you as archivists and librarians and information professionals. Uh, I am speaking to you, the person at home, with your own personal digital stuff. So we're all on the same playing field um, tonight. So what is personal digital archiving? I knew there are some professionals in the room, so I thought we'd get the semantics out of the way. So personal digital archiving is the term that has become commonly used to describe the personal digital things that individuals create, not in their work and not um, uh, for their institutions, but at home, their own personal things. Uh, another term from our, the organization that I work for, digital preservation, is interested in, in similar things. So when you're doing personal digital archiving, you're also doing some digital preservation. You're preserving some digital stuff. Another term used is digital curation. Um, I don't want to give the definitive definition to say how that's different, but you're doing a little bit of digital curation on your personal things as well. So I'm saying personal digital archiving, but I mean a little bit of all of these things. So I thought just to get us uh, on the same page, get our heads in the right place, I'd start with a bit of a definition. Uh, if I wander in front of the screen and I'm blocking something, someone just uh, motion for me to shove over. Uh, so from an institutional perspective, an institutional sort of definition of archiving uh, is looking after records or other uh, items of importance um, in order to preserve a meaningful representation of an event or a place or a person. Um, so I say, say institutional um, because there's you know, kind of theory and um, uh, decades and, and decades of um, good practice built up. Uh, and, and generally speaking, uh, archives are concerned with archiving, with preserving the original, authentic version of something. So you know, Virginia Woolf's manuscript of Mrs. Dalloway with all of her scribbles and all of her crossings out, uh, whereas a library uh, more commonly looks after published things, books that are printed and, and bound, so the bound, finished, uh, published, edited version of Mrs. Dalloway, for instance. And museums tend to look after items, after larger objects. Uh, and I know this is a library, and I think they've deliberately put that harp in the room just to undermine everything <laughs> that I'm saying. Um, but in the digital age, that is complicated because the lines and the boundaries between different types of digital creations aren't quite as clear cut. So for instance, what is the original version of a document or a file when a digital file, the same file, can be viewed by hundreds of people at exactly the same time in hundreds of different locations? So you can see how those barriers start, start to break down a little bit. Um, so don't get too hung up on the archiving, but um, there is still an, in, an invested interest 
in making decisions about what to keep and making value judgments about what's important and what these things will mean to yourself over time and to your loved ones and maybe one day to the National Archives in Ireland or, or another archive. Um, but it's not just institutions that do archiving. Obviously, uh, archives traditionally have not managed to look after and represent everybody's story and represent everybody's history. So there are emerging groups that are really interested in community archives. Um, so the archivists against history repeating uh, itself and um, documenting the now or doc now uh, are different projects uh, and groups of institutions, collaborations, um, both of them in the states actually, uh, who are interested in putting the tools and the know-how in the hands of um, particularly communities who are traditionally marginalized and either underrepresented or unrepresented in institutional archives. Um, so if you come from a community um, with a rich history and an, an interesting um, role to play, I encourage you to have a, have a look at these and see the types of um, advice and tools that they provide for community archiving. Uh, so what's this digital part? I know that we mean not paper, not analog things. Uh, but just to dig into that a little bit, I think it's important to remember the nature of, of digital stuff. So fundamentally, all digital content, all digital files, are um, encoded in binary. So there are these ones and zeros that require technology uh, to interpret and render them. Um, so these technologies, so machines, hardware, and software, are vulnerable to what we call in the business uh, obsolescence. So over time, you um, can no longer get your hands on these machines and the them, this software, and therefore you can no longer open and interpret older digital stuff. Um, so unlike paper things, which you can put in a box, on a shelf, and 100 years, as long as the building hasn't burned down, uh, you can take that paper out of the box and understand what it is and read it, and, and um, it's meaningful, as long as you speak the language that it's written in. So what's the personal part? Um, so this might seem obvious, and, and it is. So this is the first time I'm going to quote Gabriella Redwine at you. She's the author of the DPC TechWatch Report, Personal Digital Archiving. So she goes way more in depth into all of this um, than I can tonight. So I encourage you. That's one of the free reports available on the DPC website. So quite succinctly, she says, personal digital archives is just a formal term for the digital stuff uh, that we create and save every day. Um, so, you know, that's quite simple. It's, it's the stuff that you create. But I hope just by reiterating it, uh, it helps us to change the way that we think uh, about how we interact with digital technology, make us more aware of the trace that we're leaving and the things that we're creating um, and where they go and where they're living uh, and what's happening to them over time. So this might include, but it's certainly not limited to, uh, financial spreadsheets, bank statements, tax records, um, your professional CV or portfolio, um, emails, um, WhatsApp messages, family photos, photos on social media, which uh, Natalie mentioned, um, maybe a wedding video. Uh, and then one thing I just wanted to make sure we all know we're also talking about are digitized analog things. Um, so for instance, years ago when my parents got their first scanner, uh, they got very excited and they scanned all of the family analog photos. Um, so they put a lot of work into that. So it would be a shame not to look after uh, their digital surrogates, the digital copies of them, um, and make sure those are preserved over time. Sorry. Can you hear me? Whoa. <laughs> Sorry. <clears throat> All right, so just to use a personal example, right? So I'm not just Sarah Day Thompson, research officer at the DPC. Um, I'm also a person um, with digital things to a certain degree of organization. Um, so one example of um, recently when my personal digital archives were quite important is um, this year I become eligible uh, to apply for a permanent settlement in the UK. Uh, and one of the questions of the many uh, really bizarre, ambiguous questions I, I had to answer was if I had ever left the UK since I moved there uh, in September 2010. So over nine years, I had to document every date that I left and every date that I came back. This is how I felt about it. Um, I travel a lot for work as well. So I, I used several different resources. Um, I started this job in summer 2014, so my work outlook 
calendar combined with emails from my Outlook inbox archived um, or uh, organized was pretty easy to go grab dates. It, it took a while. Um, but at a certain point, about May 2014, I started to struggle. And even my personal um, Google calendar, calendars, because of course I've got multiple Google accounts, um, it started to become quite sparse. And I really had to dig into old emails to find um, email confirmations. So one problem is that uh, in the olden days, in the Maybe the battery is dying. I'm not sure. I'll just switch to this one if I need to and uh, stand behind the podium. Uh, is basically the date that I like decided sorry, that um, I was going to start using Google calendars uh, systematically. And before that, I used paper. Uh, and of course, I didn't. Yeah. OK, I'll just move over here. Um, Anyway, it would have been very helpful if I had been uh, quite systematic and used uh, digital formats for keeping track of this information much earlier. Um, but that's just a good example. If you start doing that now, in future, when you need to refer to this information, it's easy to find. Because it's not just about keeping it. It's about being able to find it. And when you do find it, to understand what it is uh, and for it to be meaningful. Another example, uh, last year this time, uh, my mother turned 60. I asked for permission to tell you all that. I also asked permission from everyone in these photos if I could use them in the presentation. Uh, so all of the, the kids and partners all gathered in Italy for this fantastic uh, holiday. We'd never all been on holiday together uh, like that before. Um, so um, loads of photos. Uh, and just to, to throw another Gabriella Redwine quote at you, and something that I hope you'll keep in mind when you're making decisions about what digital stuff to keep. Uh, the meaning of digital files can change over time. The text message that initially seems inconsequential uh, may take on vital significance if it ends up being the last communication from a loved one. Uh, so just a few months after that big trip to Italy, my stepdad was diagnosed with cancer. So I'm not trying to bring uh, the mood down. He's doing really great. But that was just a personal example of when the meaning of all these photos that were just on Facebook, I didn't even take them, suddenly became very important. And I could see how down the line those would mean a lot to me. Um, so we take for granted all these digital platforms and social media and our phones because they're easy to use and they're convenient. Um, but to not take that for granted and to think about what you might want to hold on to and want in the future. So threats. Um, more bad news. Uh, what are the issues that um, our digital stuff face? What, what might destroy them or prevent us uh, from accessing our digital stuff in the future? So I already mentioned this one, obsolescence. And it comes in a few different flavors. It just means when things get old and are no longer available. So that might be hardware. Um, your machines might get old. And so um, the example I like to use for this uh, and for storage media is my DPC laptop for work, um, which is not this one, it's over there, uh, which isn't even the newest generation of, of work laptops, doesn't have a, a CD drive. I can't get information off of CDs on that laptop. Uh, so any information on CDs, it would just be that much more effort for me to be able to get that information off. Uh, but software also becomes obsolete. Uh, particularly, that's a problem if you've got very specific types of file formats that that software is really the only software that you can open them with. Um, and this one isn't exactly obsolescence, but it's similar service providers. If you're relying on a service provider to look after your stuff, say you use Google Drive, you're then relying on Google to not only exist, but to continue to look after um, all of your digital stuff. And then also human error. You accidentally delete things, or your cat walks over your laptop and accidentally deletes things, or you accidentally knock over a cup of, cup of tea onto your laptop and destroys all that information. Um, so keeping extra copies um, is one way that you deal with that. But it, human error and just making mistakes could happen at any moment. Uh, degradation, uh, and something you might hear, uh, bit rot. And this is just when digital things uh, get old. So uh, hardware, machines um, are subject uh, to all of the sort of um, uh, degradation uh, and breakdown of, of all material things. Uh, and then, of course, natural disaster. So fire will destroy a paper archive. It will also destroy your digital stuff. Um, so these are all the things that might go wrong. Uh, but hopefully by the end of the talk, we won't be so worried about those things anymore.
hopefully. They could still happen, that's what I say. You know, digital stuff always faces threats. Doing digital archiving or digital preservation is just about minimizing those threats. So what are the basic steps? What are you going to leave, um, leave tonight and go do over the weekend for fun? Um, so the, the first thing you're going to do is find all of your stuff on your different devices, on your different platforms, and then move it into one place. Because once it's in one place, it's much easier to review everything you have um, and select what to keep. And this is the first time I'm going to say delete the stuff that you don't need. Delete the duplicates, delete the junk. Um, and I'll probably say that a few more times because it's very important. Um, and then organize it. So like I've said, part of digital preservation, of digital archiving, is being able to find stuff, not just keep it. Uh, make sure then, once you've decided what you're going to keep, you've gotten rid of all the junk, um, store multiple copies of your digital stuff and in multiple places, and then repeat. Because you are probably going to keep creating more digital stuff on new different types of devices in new different file formats. Uh, so it keeps moving, unfortunately. You can't just do this once and never do it again. So what are some guiding principles? This is just a, a quick list of things I wanted to make sure I said tonight. Uh, so first, make an inventory of what you have, just so that you can keep track. And if someone comes behind you, God forbid something happens to you, they know what you've got and where to find it. So make a spreadsheet. Go nuts. Um, archiving is not just keeping. It's also deleting. So that's me on number two, delete stuff you don't need. Uh, printing is not the solution. Please do not go home and just print all of your digital stuff in fear that you might lose it. Digital uh, technologies bring so many opportunities uh, for linking to other material, interesting functionalities to interact, and you get so much more out of it um, when you are able to maintain things in their digital format. So tonight isn't about go home and print everything. Tonight is about learning um, uh, ways to uh, look after and save your digital stuff in the form that it's in. Um, also, uh, archiving an email, so in Gmail when you archive it, that's hiding. That's not archiving. So you're not magically putting it into some long-term super duper repository that Google has somewhere in California. Um, so you're not done. And I'll, I'll give you a little technique for how to deal with uh, emails in Gmail later on. And you really do have to do all those pesky operating system updates. Don't put it off. That is a security issue. Uh, so that can uh, destroy your digital stuff as well if a virus gets in and destroys everything. Um, but yeah, just keeping everything up to date is good practice. And also, act now. Digital stuff uh, does not survive waiting around to do something the way that paper stuff does. So what are the different topics that we are going to discuss tonight? Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about file naming and folding. Uh, folder structure, which might sound a little bit boring, but it is really important. And it's one of those things that if you take the time to do it right, you will be really thankful uh, in the future when you go back and you can find things. Uh, describing things. So as everybody here tonight put their hand up earlier because they're actually secretly archivists, we call this metadata. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about digital images and videos which are often the exception to a lot of advice, uh, just because they're a little bit different and a little bit more difficult and complex. We're going to talk about email and calendars. Uh, and then my favorite topic is web and social media content. So I'm very excited to get to that. Uh, and then we're going to talk a little bit about good ideas for backing up your data uh, and storing your data. Uh, and then lastly, just a few things around copyright and personal data and how to think about those things in the long term. Um, rather than just in the short term. And then I'm just going to throw a bunch of information at you. Um, we're going to share these these slides. Can we share it? Yeah. So you can go, if you're really interested, uh, go and click all the links and look at all the other guidance out there. Uh, and I know this can seem daunting. It is a lot of work. So um, I'm not trying to oversimplify it. But it's worth it. Uh, I think it's definitely worth it. And the good thing about digital is it does make stuff like this a bit faster and a bit easier than if you had to do it with a bunch of paper stuff. So file naming and folder structure. Woohoo! Um, so one piece of advice is to use um, unique and descriptive file names, but keep it short. So you more or less want to know what it is by the file name. Um, avoid the use of spaces and special characters. This is slightly a throwback, but there are still systems and software that won't know what to do with that. So it could prevent you from being able to open files. Uh, so use dashes and underscores instead. Uh, try to use the ISO standard uh, format for dates, as you can see. So year, four digits, 
two-digit month, two-digit uh, day. That's also a handy trick for immediately getting your file directory to chronologically order your files for you. Um, don't change the file extension through renaming. That's another one. Newer, modern uh, applications and programs can typically ignore you if you're wrong about the file extension and they'll know what to open and show it to you, but some systems might not know what to do with that. So I'd avoid typing in the file extension. Uh, just choose it from the drop-down menu. Um, and also use a consistent method for showing versions. So for some reason, you need multiple versions of the same thing. You don't want to get rid of the first version. Uh, just always use V1 or version 1. Um, sort of like, the, I forgot I had a laser pointer this whole time. Um, sort of like that. So just a tip uh, to keep in mind, some devices, uh, I'm mainly talking about cameras here, uh, automatically assign a file name. So when you upload all of the photos from um, your camera onto your laptop, for instance, it, it automatically assigns a bunch of file names. It is worth it to take the time uh, to change the file name um, or individual photos may become very difficult to find in the future. The other um, slightly less likely to happen but could still happen issue with that is sometimes your camera um, or maybe a different camera will produce the same file name and when you're importing all those photos it may accidentally overwrite older photos which you might not realize and then you've lost older things by accident. So uh, digital archiving preservation is a lot about what if something goes wrong and um, so there'll be a, be a lot of that but it's worth knowing because it could happen. So for folders, again, um, cr creating folders mindfully, choosing um, categories that are logical, so maybe by type, so photos or, or videos or documents, um, or in the archiving world, we like to order things by function, so maybe your finances go in one folder and family holidays uh, might have a folder. Um, and ask yourself when you're creating those, would somebody else be able to find their way around this? And one good way of organizing things is by year. Again, this very handy thing of the file directory automatically, chronologically ordering your, your folders for you. Those are fake folders, just. Describe your stuff. So as I said, in the business, we call this metadata, which just means information about information. So that might be the date of creation, that might be the creator, which might not necessarily um, be the person who's registered under that Microsoft account, it might be somebody different. Uh, so deliberately naming the person who created it might be important. It could also be any uh, information that describes um, people, places, uh, or location. A lot of applications will automatically uh, embed this information in your files. But like I said, sometimes machines do their best at guessing. Doesn't mean that they're right. Uh, so adding tags or this embedded metadata uh, can help make sure that you have information you need um, to later understand what some of these digital files are. So in Windows, that would be in properties. Uh, I'm not a Mac person, but I have it under good authority that the equivalent of this in Mac is get info. Uh, and that allows you to go in and actually edit the embedded metadata. And I'm going to show that in a, in a second. Uh, photo editing applications uh, also usually allow for you to go in and add um, more information to attach um, to your TIFF or your, to your JPEG. And this is particularly important this embedded metadata um, for photos and videos because um, unlike text, you can't search images yet. Google are working on it. Um, so to find images, you ha they have to be described with text. Um, so that's just particularly important. If you've got a text document, um, it might be slightly easier to understand it um, when you open it. Um, but you don't know someone's name necessarily just by seeing their face. So this is what um, properties look like in a Microsoft Word. A Windows 10 document. Uh, so you can see this is just the uh, info um, tab. Uh, and these are just the different, um, can you see that? Sort of. Um, the different bits of information that you can adjust. So this was a workshop for a, um, for a conference that I put in uh, with other people. So I've recorded, I actually went in and did that. Word didn't just know. So that's what it looks like to add some embedded metadata to a Windows 10 a Microsoft Word document. So file formats, uh, the actual um, type of file that you are saving and keeping. These are just some recommendations to have in mind and that in a perfect world you could make all your decisions about. Um, so these are um, 
suggestions, not necessarily hard rules. But it's uh, important to consider using open file formats, so like open, uh, open Word, open text documents, because there are more software programs that will be able to open them. Um, also, non-proprietary formats, uh, which lowers the risk of the file format owner going out of business or ending support uh, and then not being able to access uh, your files over time. It also lowers the risk of getting trapped in that cycle of having to keep purchasing um, new versions of software. Uh, so uncompressed, this matters mostly, obviously, for photos and for video. Uh, so an uncompressed file format like TIFF is a much bigger file. It takes up a lot of space, but you have a lot more information. So when you compress uh, a file, you get smaller files, but you might have less information. Um, so you might get told uncompressed for photo and video, but it depends. If you are really tight for space uh, and you don't want to delete some of your photos, um, compressed might be an option. So. Uh, this will be my first shout out to Jenny O'Neill, who is the data manager um, at UCD Library here in Dublin. Uh, and I have never actually given a full talk on this topic. Uh, so she very kindly uh, lent me some of her slides uh, from a talk, similar talk that she gave. Um, and this was part of it. Uh, and I don't have any corrections on this. So I have just shared it uh, in its entirety. So these are just some recommendations for file formats you might want to um, to use over others. So PDF, A, or um, plain text, for instance, for text documents. Uh, but normal PDF uh, is fine. And um, in some cases, PDF might be preferable to PDFA. I hope there are no PDFA uh, diehards in the room. I'm happy to have this argument uh, at the wine reception, if you're interested. Um, for images, JPEG and TIFF. Uh, but I think PNG and, and GIF are also um, pretty robust, really commonly used. Um, so that's one of the things that makes a file format um, good for preservation or good for long-term access is that a lot of people use it. That's commonly used. Uh, for video, using MPEG-2 um, or MPEG-4 or lossless AVI. So you can see here that um, video, it's a bit more crucial <laughs> that you choose uh, a particular file format. Uh, you can see Jenny's not even not even entertained anything else that's acceptable. Um, and then for audio, using a, a WAV file. Uh, but there are actually extensive recommendations for file formats, and it's something that digital preservation people were very worried about 10 years ago. Uh, but I'd say from where we are now, we're not as worried about it as, as we were. But if you want to make good conscious choices, um, just have a Google. Um, TNA has a database called Pronom that is just a database of file formats. So if you're really interested um, and really bored on a Friday night, that's a, a really great resource. So what do you do uh, if your files are not in the format that you want them in? Uh, so in the business, we call this migration. So you're just migrating or converting a file uh, into a different file type. You've probably done it, converted a Word document into a PDF, uh, for example. Uh, so this might be uh, updating an uh, old version of a file into the newer version of that file type, or it could be moving, say, all of your text documents uh, into a more stable format like PDF. Digital images and video. As you can see, there's advice about the sort of scattered throughout. As, as I mentioned, a photo and photos and videos are often the exception to a lot of the other um, recommendations just because they're a bit more difficult uh, and a bit more complex. But one thing that's important about photos, I think, and how we today um, take photos and keep photos and share photos is that we have them in a lot of different places. So just being mindful about where they are. Are they on a laptop? Are they on a shared family computer? Um, you can see here the extra sort of um, exclamation point and uh, question marks. These are not great places. Uh, so CDs, uh, I think uh, a while back, people thought it was, you know, just put all your stuff on CDs. It'll be safe. That's, um, that's not true. So if you've got a lot of important stuff on CDs, I would recommend, like tonight, go home and get them, get it off, get it on, onto a hard drive. Um, an old digital camera, um, what if the, the formatting of that camera can no longer sort of um, uh, render on your laptop or um, you, it's just slow and you really struggle to get, get um, the images off? Or even worse, on a work computer, um, sorry, the archivist in me is like, no, no, no personal things on your computer. Um, but for the sake of your personal, 
personal stuff. Uh, so just a, a tidbit to remember that digital images and video take up a lot of space. So the photos and video do take a little bit more planning uh, and a little bit more forethought and is a little bit more time consuming. Um, so I let it go a little bit too long to update all the photos on my phone to my Dropbox account. And it took me something like an entire afternoon to make sure everything uploaded properly. And that was only sort of four months worth of photos. So just to keep in mind, to, to plan time out for that. Email and calendars. Uh, again, be organized. Make use of the labeling and the sorting functions that your, your email provider um, already has built in uh, to the program. Um, delete unimportant emails. Junk mail is, this is one of the worst examples, I think, for letting things you don't need really build up and take up space. So definitely go through, delete the things that you don't need. Um, download and save important attachments. So I'm certainly guilty of this. I will use my Gmail account as a kind of uh, records management system where I keep like photos of my passport and like all sorts of things because I know I can find them easily. And that's fine. That's fantastic. I think that's the beauty of digital stuff. But also download that attachment and save it locally um, and put it in your, your spreadsheet inventory and look, look after them properly. So Outlook uh, and similar mail services to Outlook allow the export of an archival uh, format of your, of your emails. Uh, Gmail and other platforms are a bit trickier, but I am going to try and do a semi-demo just to show you um, one way of pulling down uh, individual messages from Gmail for an, an example. Uh, but other online email platforms have similar functions. Um, so the first thing you want to do is go into your Gmail account, log in, um, open the email that you think is important that you want to pull down, uh, and then click the three little dots, uh, vertical dots on the next to reply. And this is just for more options. Um, and you'll get this. Yep. Uh, and then what you're looking for is this show original. And that's this here. So I'm sure that Google has updated their interface, and it's going to look slightly different when you go home and try to do this. But this is the, ba the basic process. So what you get when you click that um, is this lovely bit of metadata. <clears throat> but what you're looking for is this download button uh, here over here, which will download um, the email in a file format called EML. So I am not an expert on email preservation. And if you're interested in that, I can point you to some really awesome expert people. Um, but EML can be opened by other programs um, like Outlook. So it's just a bit more stable. Um, sorry, it looks like this. So you can just create. It just goes in your file directory. Um, uh, so then you can look after it the way that you look after your other documents and your other photos and videos and everything else. Yeah, as you can see. So calendars, again, I keep reiterating, just to be organized. Um, use a consistent approach to creating events and meetings. So if you always use a certain color, for instance, for a certain type of event, um, or consistently list the people who were there, it's easier for somebody archivist to come behind you and understand, um, make, make sense of this and to understand what they're looking at. Outlook, again, allows export. And Google Calendar also supports export. This is part of them wanting to be able to sync with other uh, email programs. Um, so it looks like this. So you can export your Google Calendar. Web and social media content is so exciting. Uh, so yes, I'd say most of us in here, the majority of the digital interaction that we have is web-based. And we are creating important communications and traces of ourselves and, and creating things and expressing things constantly uh, all day, or some of us anyway. So this might be uh, on a website that you have or a blog, which might be on your own website, or it might use a platform like WordPress or Blogger. Um, you might be active on one or more social media platforms. I've been told uh, by my younger sisters that Facebook isn't in anymore, uh, but I certainly use Facebook, and I think a lot of us still do, um, or other sharing platforms. Um, so there are a lot of different photo sharing uh, web-based platforms that aren't open, that aren't really social networking. So this is just a tip. Uh, it's just sort of a good practice. You don't have to do it, but uh, I would recommend when you want to share a photo or a video uh, on social media, I would recommend actually taking it with your camera or your phone and having it in your on your mobile phone, which might then be automatically uploaded to the cloud. And then you have to 
piece. Um, but that it's in your possession locally on your device. Um, rather than using the function on the social media um, platform or app, app on your phone that lets you take the photo and then uh, keeps it directly in that platform. Or at the very least, um, download the photos and the videos um, that are on social media but not on your laptop or your, your own personal um, machine or device. So there are some really good, easy to use approaches uh, to capturing web content. This is referred to as web archiving. <coughs> Sorry. So one tool uh, that I think is really awesome and is really the one I'm recommending here if you've got some web content or maybe other public web content that you just think is really relevant or is important to you and you want to go capture it before it disappears, I would recommend Web Recorder. So this is a tool uh, designed by an organization called Rhizome uh, and they look after web-based internet art and they're attached to the New Museum in New York. They're very chic and very cool. Uh, but this tool is very usable. It's web-based. You don't need to download anything. Um, they do have some extras that you can download that make it even more awesome, but you don't have to. If you just go to the website, webrecorder.io, sign up for an account, you can start web archiving tonight. Uh, HTTrack is another tool that will download websites uh, to, your, to your machine. And then I'm going to show you a couple of different options for downloading your data from a web-based platform. So like I said, Web Recorder, seriously, go try it. It's awesome. Um, there are other tools out there if you're interested in web archiving. Um, the field is becoming much more developed. There are a lot more user-friendly tools out there. Uh, I mentioned uh, DocNow, uh, Document the Now. They've got some of their own really cool tools that are designed for people who don't have training in archiving. Um, but this one, I think, is, is the easiest. Anyways, I really like it. You should use it. HTTrack uh, is a bit older. Um, it's not really being supported anymore. Um, this is not starting out great. But I do think it is a useful tool if you're not an expert, you're not a technical person. You can. It looks a bit old school because it's kind of an old tool. Um, but it will download a website. Um, right, so I should say Web Recorder is designed to capture complex, so modern websites, social media platforms. It does fantastic at that. HTTrack does not. You will not be able to capture a social media account with it. So I should just, just say that as a caveat. But a more traditional website, even some blogs, um, you can download it to your computer. Uh, it just looks like a normal file directory, and you can view it offline. So platform self-archiving. And this is something I really do hope all of you will consider doing if you use social media to really um, take ownership of your content uh, and to, to look after it and not rely on the social media platforms who are often fleeting, um, who have no legal responsibility to you, um, to look after it yourself. Um, so these uh, platform options where you, you actually sign in, it's only, only you are allowed to download your own social media data. So it's behind the login. The way it works is slightly different platform to platform. Um, so it might take a little bit of tinkering if it's one that I haven't uh, given some instructions for. Uh, and there are also some external tools that exist outside the platform that are free to download, but they're designed to capture content from a particular social media platform. So this is really just a, a smattering. These are what I think are the main uh, Social media platforms are probably got it wrong. Uh, but Google has a service called Takeout, where you're, um, they refer to it as downloading your data. So ironically, just Google it. Uh, Google support has some really good instructions for how to do this. Um, same with Twitter support and, and Facebook support. So Twitter, this is, I think, the best one. They've done the best job at, at supporting uh, users being able to get their own data out of the platform. And it's under Settings under account, and they refer to it as download your Twitter data. Facebook has something similar, but they call it your Facebook information. I don't know if this is sort of like, they want to spook you by like Facebook and data. Uh, just hoping you'll forget the whole Cambridge Analytica thing. Um, but yeah, so they call it download your information. Instaport is one of these external tools. It doesn't exist inside Instagram. It's an external tool, but it's a free download. Just Google it. Um, and it is designed uh, to pull all of your Instagram photos down. 
And then WhatsApp, I learned this from Jenny O'Neill's presentation, actually, I didn't know this, you can back up to your Google Drive. Um, so this is also a great way if you're moving uh, from a phone to a newer phone to make sure you don't lose any of those uh, back conversations. You don't forget to answer your mom's WhatsApp message. Backup and storage. Um, so this is where all of your digital stuff lives. Uh, so you've got your more um, stationary storage, I suppose you could say. So hard drives, your desktop, your laptop, even a device, maybe like a tablet or a mobile phone is constantly storing your digital data. Then you've got removable storage. So you've got your external hard drives, and some of them are, are quite good, um, really stable. You've got your flash drives, your, your memory sticks. We call them thumb drives in America, uh, but I used that recently and nobody knew what I was talking about. So anyway, it's an American thing, or maybe just a me thing. Uh, CDs, uh, of course, are, are data carriers. You can um, save data to a CD or a DVD. Do you remember floppy disks? Yeah, okay, so do I. Um, so obviously that's not a great idea to store uh, data on a floppy disk, even if you can. Uh, and then there's cloud storage option. I actually think cloud storage is really good and quite exciting because obviously it's not just good for storing data, it makes your data really accessible. So if you're stranded somewhere, you've accidentally dropped your phone in the toilet, you don't have a laptop, you don't know anybody, you can get, if you can get to a device connected to the internet, you can get your, your information. Uh, so there's Dropbox, uh, Microsoft OneDrive, Google Drive has quite a, a large free uh, storage allowance, uh, as does Google Drive. Uh, but just one thing uh, I want you to take away tonight about storage for long-term preservation and archiving is that not all types of storage are great uh, for for keeping your stuff for a long time. So I would not recommend having one of your main uh, archival uh, stores be a tablet or a mobile phone just because they're quite vulnerable and they've got a relatively short lifespan. Uh, the same flash drives, CDs, DVDs, even floppy disks, are really handy for moving data around, for sharing data. So I brought my presentation tonight on a, on a thumb drive, which you now all know what that is. Um, so it's great for moving data around, um, but they're really vulnerable to damage. Um, so there are people who, uh, I've heard horror stories, researchers who had huge amounts of their research data saved on floppy disks that were corrupted and it was just gone, sort of decades worth of work. Um, so definitely um, try to use uh, more stable storage uh, and, and cloud storage. Uh, the only thing with cloud storage is being aware of the contract and being aware of how healthy uh, that business is doing. And if you think that your your cloud storage provider, say Dropbox, you know, writing's on the wall, they're about to go under, you just move it to a different provider. <laughs> so the main takeaway, uh, hard drives, good. Laptops, not bad. Just be aware of the lifespan of your laptop, how long it might last. Cloud storage, good. Phones, CDs, thumb drives, floppy disks, no, just no. Uh, so even that good, stable, hard drive uh, storage will also degrade over time. Uh, so I think the average hard drive lifespan is about five years or something like that. And of course, that, that depends if it's in a nice climate-controlled environment with medium use, you'll get a longer lifespan out of it, probably, uh, unless there's uh, some kind of uh, hard drive failure. Uh, whereas if, like me, you travel a lot, you've got this laptop, it's in a lot of different environments, it gets really heavily used, it might not last as long. So just being aware of that. Um, so it basically means when it comes time, you need to buy new things, invest uh, in your, your digital storage and your digital machines. So I'm not going to say too much about this because it's probably just like one degree too intense uh, for personal digital archiving. But if you are a secret archivist in the room or you're just really interested, uh, fixity checking is the next level uh, to manage your digital stuff. And it's just using a tool to create a checksum um, that you check over time to make sure your digital files haven't changed. If you want to really geek out and have a look at a tool that does this, I would recommend looking at Fixity by AVP. So I'm running out of time, so I'm just going to move on. Uh, so just to recap, uh, keep multiple copies of your files. Um, keep a copy in a different location. So the cloud is a, a you know a big bank of servers somewhere in Finland or wherever. So that would qual qualify. So if there's a fire uh, in your house, it's not going to affect the servers in Finland. Uh, so don't use the same storage media for every copy. So diversify. Maybe use a laptop and an external hard drive, and use password protection to prevent those human accidents uh, from people accidentally deleting things uh, or breaking something. So for example. 
um, when I'm being well behaved, I have one copy of my data on a laptop, on my personal laptop, one on an external hard drive, and uh, a copy on Dropbox. And my, I really prioritize uh, my photos, uh, partially because of the, the storage limit on my phone. Copyright and personal data. Um, just a few things to say about this. Obviously, don't have time to fully explain the issues of IPR in, in digital content, but just to be mindful of the distinction and copyright between the creator and the owner. Uh, so social media, I keep calling them out. I'm a big fan of social media, but also they can be a bit greedy. Uh, when you upload content to Twitter, Facebook, most of the, the social media platforms, you have the copyright. It's yours. It's also theirs. So just being aware of that and how you're sharing data uh, and what types of stuff you're sharing and just being mindful of that. And you're a private individual. So as long as you're not selling someone else's uh, creative uh, work, um, you know, you're, you're probably all right. But just to have thoughtful reuse when you're reusing somebody else's stuff. And if you are a creator and you're maybe a designer or a blogger and you're creating lots of original, really fantastic, amazing content, please, 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 please use Creative Commons. Label for the rest of us how you intend that stuff to be reused uh, and uh, what, your, what your intentions are. GDPR, sorry, I know you've probably all been browbeaten with it in the past, uh, but just to say a few words about it in terms of long-term archiving of your digital stuff. Um, so personal data is anything that can identify you, any information about you uh, that leads people to, to know that it's you. And keeping in mind that it is much easier in digital information to combine different sources of data to identify you. So even two different anonymized versions of data, someone could still, um, using sort of unique features about you, uh, find you. So it's really important uh, to be aware of where you're sharing personal data. So for GDPR, who must comply? EU organizations must be EU must be GDPR compliant, but also even uh, any service outside the EU that holds the information of an EU citizen must comply with GDPR. Um, so that's really powerful. So that means Facebook based in the States and other social media platforms based in the States um, must be responsible with how they hold your personal data. So I am not an EU citizen um, and I live in an EU country, but any American organizations that hold my data, uh, you know, I'm not covered by this. So as an outsider, I'm telling you, this is really powerful. Um, and I think organizations generally are pretty terrified of the GDPR. Uh, stick, um, so you shouldn't have any problems. Uh, but in Ireland, if you do feel like your data is being misused, uh, the proper place to go for complaint uh, is the Data Protection Commission. Whew, okay, that's all my advice. Um, so there are further resources here. Um, I just uh, wanted, um, in particular, to get to the slide uh, to say thank you very much to the Digital Repository of Ireland and the National Archives uh, for letting me come geek out at all of you tonight. Uh, if there's anything that I sort of just breeze past and you didn't catch it or you want to know more, I'm here for the wine reception uh, and I'm, I'm happy to chat about this stuff all night. Um, and a giant thank you to Jenny O'Neill for sharing uh, her slides so that I could give you even better uh, information tonight. Thank you. Um, just a super thank you, Sarah. So much information in there. And as we uh, we had a quick exchange up here saying, of course, we will make these slides available. So if you were, if your hand is falling off uh, or your two thumbs from trying to copy everything down, we'll uh, we'll make that available. 